Good morning, friends. Uh, If you wouldn't mind keeping your Bible open to Ephesians 5 so you can make sure that I don't say anything God hasn't already said. Well, it is, uh, this is a passage about marriage, and it's addressed pretty directly to husbands and wives. And yet I realize that in this room, not everyone is married. Not everyone is a husband or a wife. Some of you have been married in the past. Some of you will be married in the future. Some of you will never be married at all. Uh, But regardless, I want to argue that this passage matters for all of us. Just as uh, your married friends should be able to speak redemptively into your singleness if you're unmarried, you should certainly be able to speak redemptively into your friends' marriages. And in fact, we need you to. When the only people in the church who care about marriage are married people, our vision for marriage is too small. Will you pray with me before we look at this again? Almighty God, our Father, you once said, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. May we be such people today. Help me as I speak. Help my friends as they listen. Help us all as we seek to honor you with our lives. So teach us, we pray. In Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, well, it's, it's important that before we jump in, we remember where we are in this letter because uh, it, it, all, it all works together well. So uh, if you just look back uh, a little bit up to verse 18, which we've looked at before, you'll see that Paul said, don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then uh, he starts to flesh out what that might look like, and he says things like singing to each other, making melody, giving thanks, things like that. And then the final description that Paul gives in verse 21 of what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit is this. Look at verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it's important that we realize that uh, one of the implications of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that believers submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul goes on now for the next several passages to flesh out what that looks like in different relationships and different situations. Uh, right, right here, he's about to say that um, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ will look a certain way in your marriages, verses 22 through 33. He says it'll look a certain way in your families, verses six, uh, chapter 6, 1 through 4. And then it's going to look a certain way in your workplace, as we'll see in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. But let's not forget to always draw the arrow back to verse 18. What we're about to talk about today is Holy Spirit-filled marriage, which tells me at least two things from the outset. Number one, this is probably going to go against my flesh. In other words, don't be surprised if some of this is hard. And the second thing it tells me is that if we have the Holy Spirit, it's possible. We're not being called to do something that's going to be impossible for us to do. So, This is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We can do things we otherwise wouldn't be able to do. So, spirit-filled marriage, don't be surprised if it feels like it runs against some of your innermost 
uh, thoughts and desires, and then don't be afraid that you're not going to have the ability to walk it out, no matter how far-fetched it might seem in the moment. So we're going to break this passage down into three chunks. Uh, We've got directions for a spirit-filled wife, directions for a spirit-filled husband, and we've got a bigger picture that we're going to close with. So let's jump right in. I'm going to try to keep us cruising here, but I've got a lot to say to husbands. So... (laughs) Um, so bef- before I say anything else, uh, I want to say something uh, very, very seriously. I'm not talking exclusively to women, but I am talking especially to women. Uh, if you wonder if you are in an abusive relationship or if you know for sure that you are, uh, I want to ask you to please find a way to talk with somebody about that as soon as you can. If you're in an abusive marriage, your primary task is not to investigate your own heart and search for your own repentance. I'm not saying you're sinless, but I'm saying that in an abusive marriage, your primary task is to find a way to be safe. Every marriage involves two sinners, but when there's abuse involved, the sin of the abuser and the safety of the abused need to be the immediate primary focus. I want that to be clear from the outset before I say anything else. God hates abuse. And he especially hates it when his word is demonically twisted to justify it. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. These are not popular words in the culture we live in. And I understand why. So we've come to think of submission as a weaker person, helplessly coming under the dominance of a stronger person, with little to no choice in the matter. So it's understandable to me why lots of people inside and outside the church have a hard time with these words to Christian wives. I get that. The far greater tragedy is that many Christian marriages have looked like something something like what we've seen what what we think of when we think of le- leadership, headship, authority, submission. Many men who have claimed to follow Jesus have understood these words to mean something frighteningly similar to the picture of dominated weakness. And let me tell you with great confidence, that is nothing like what God has in mind when he designs marriage. That's nothing like what Paul has in mind when he writes these words. We need to look no further than chapter 4 of this very same letter when Paul's opening words to describe a life worthy of the gospel are to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love. And then he goes on to say, don't tolerate sinful anger. Don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Speak only words that build up the person who hears. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. He goes on to say, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. He says, be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Do we really think he gets to this part of the letter to talk about marriage and throws it all out the window and says, but husbands, make sure your wife stays in her place. 
heartbreaking and devastating distortion of God's word we're capable of in our flesh. So then what does it mean for wives to submit to their husbands? And perhaps more importantly, how can this have anything to do with the good news of the gospel? Let's try to follow Paul's reasoning and see if we can move towards some answers. Said in verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. So Paul wants to help us understand marriage by comparing it to the story of redemption that he's already been telling. In chapter 4, he described the relationship between Christ and the church as a relationship between a head and a body. The idea being that in a way similar to how our heads direct the movement and function of our bodies, Christ directs the movement and function of his church. Now, as with any analogy or parable, we need to be careful that we don't take it too far to mean something that it wasn't intended to mean. For instance... Christ being the head of his church does not mean that none of us have any brains. It doesn't mean we shouldn't think our own thoughts for ourselves. It doesn't mean that he's the only one who gets to speak or contribute or have an opinion or add any value to the relationship. I don't think anyone, man or woman, who knows and follows Jesus believes that's how he views us in our relationship. Now translate that to marriage. Anywhere you see a wife who's treated like she doesn't have any brains, she shouldn't be able to think for herself, she doesn't get to speak up or contribute or have an opinion or add genuine value to the relationship, then you're not seeing a Christian marriage operating according to God's heart and design. Too many Christian wives have felt this way because too many Christian husbands have failed to think honestly about the relationship between Christ and and his church. Consider this for a minute. What's Jesus' posture towards his people? Does he tell us to keep our thoughts and desires to ourselves? Or does he invite us to come to him, to pour out our hearts to him, to make our thoughts and desires, requests, fears, troubles, and joys known to him? Does he rule us with an iron fist? Or is he gentle and lowly in heart? Does he micromanage every detail and decision of our lives? Or does he give us general guidance and an abundance of freedom to walk in wisdom? Does he make us feel inferior to him? Or has he said things about us that should make us blush with honor? Has he withheld from us anything good or has he joyfully invited us to share in all that's his? Has he made sure to keep us in our lowly place or has he in fact taken our lowly place and given us his glory? Yes, Christ is the head of his church and this without a doubt implies authority but it's nothing like the kind of authority that we hate or that makes us feel small and insignificant. It's the exact opposite of that. It's the exact opposite of that kind of leadership. Christ's headship 
leads countless men and women around the world to glad-hearted submission because he is unapologetically and unrestrainedly for us in every single part of our lives. When someone is in a position of leadership and is that fiercely committed to our good, it's a joy to follow. This is the kind of picture Paul has in mind when he calls wives to follow their husbands. And we should also be careful not to let an analogy say less than it means to say. Just because we might have negative associations with the ideas of leadership and authority and submission doesn't mean that, that, that they can't have anything to do with God's design for marriage. It's difficult to argue that Paul doesn't have different roles in view within the marriage relationship. Every society that's ever existed has found the inherent usefulness of having defined leadership roles. No tribe, country, business, or team works very well without clarity of leadership. It's part of how God's designed his world to work. So I don't think it's surprising to find that this wisdom also pertains to marriage somehow. In God's wisdom, a wife is called to submit to, or as Paul will rephrase it a few verses later in verse 33, a wife is called to respect her husband's leadership so far as he follows Christ. Even though we may have negative connotations with these categories, it's worth pointing out that Jesus himself walked out a role of submission to God the Father. In 1 Corinthians 11, it's a section where Paul's writing to another church, about their own particular challenges in understanding God-given roles, he writes this, 1 Corinthians 11.3. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Jesus lived his life in perfect submission to the will of his heavenly Father. Didn't mean he was somehow lesser than his Father. Jesus is, after all, the one from whom, through whom, and for whom all things exist. He is the, has the name that's above every other name. And yet he submitted himself to the will of his Father while he lived his earthly life. So let's be clear, when a wife is called to submit to the leadership of her husband, that doesn't mean she's inferior to her, to her husband. It doesn't mean she has less value than her husband. Doesn't she mean she's not as smart as her husband? Doesn't mean she's not as godly or wise as her husband? Doesn't even mean she doesn't have the more pronounced leadership qualities, which is sometimes the case. It just means that in God's design, husbands and wives are called to different roles in the marriage, both of which Jesus himself has dignified by his own example. Wives, I won't pretend to think that this is always easy or maybe ever easy. But I will tell you this with a lot of confidence. God makes a lot of promises to people who walk in humility, particularly those who walk in humility in submission to his word. Those who, like Christ, say to God, not my will but yours be done. And then remember what I said a few minutes ago. This is why we have the Holy Spirit. Nothing's impossible. But as we turn our attention from the wife to the role of the husband, let me point out that Paul said to the wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Not meaning as if your husband is the Lord. 
but setting the stage for what he's about to say, starting in verse 25. Your husband is not the Lord. Your husband is not your Savior. But you're being called to submit to a man who himself is being called to love you like the Lord loves his bride. So let's talk about the spirit-filled husband. We've established that wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord can go wrong, does often go wrong, could even be construed as harsh, oppressive, unwelcome. And if Paul went right on to to turn to husbands and say, now husbands, exercise your authority over your wife, we'd have problems. But that's not what Paul says. That's not where he goes. He does the exact opposite. He turns and says, now husbands, love your wives. And then he doesn't leave it up to us to define what that looks like. He fleshes it out, literally. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now we're going to look at four characteristics of this Christ-like love that Paul kind of uh, fleshes out here, but let me just make one overarching statement before I do. So we've all been called, back in chapter 5, verse 2, we've all been called to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. All Christians are called to that. But no other relationship in Scripture is described in these kinds of terms as two becoming one flesh. This is a unique relationship that calls for a unique kind of love. Which leads me to this overarching statement that I like to put in front of husbands as often as I can. Husband, no person on this earth should get a better version of you than your wife does. It's far too easy for us to put on a good face all day long, treat people like it's their birthday, and then come home and shut it all down and collapse in a heap bent inward on ourselves like some kind of a zombie. Leftovers at home. If other people in your life say, wow, he's such a good dude, thoughtful, gentle, understanding, kind, And your wife hears that and thinks to herself, that's not the man I live with. That's a problem. That's called being a hypocrite. And you should stop everything else in your life and pay attention to that. No one on this earth should get a better version of you than your wife does. Here are four characteristics of Christ-like love that husbands are called to. First, It's called to a sacrificial kind of love. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ laid down his life literally for his bride. What does it look like for a husband to give himself up for his wife? It's the kind of leadership that says things like this. My needs comes after your needs. My interests Take a back seat to your interests. If one of us gets the raw end of the deal, it's going to be me. If I can go without something so that you can have something, that's my pleasure. Now, you guys know that I would rather use a football illustration over a baseball one any day of the week, twice on Sundays. But it's baseball season and we're still a few months away from glory, so we're gonna, we'll settle for this. Most of you know what a sacrifice fly is in baseball. Sacrifice fly. So if I come up to bat with one out, 
late in the game. Game's tied. One of my teammates is on second base. One of the very best things I can do is swing my little heart out, knock that ball into the outfield where it's caught. Sends me back to the shadows of the dugout and sends my teammate advancing around the bases for the winning run. Why is that such a great thing for me to do? Because once the ball's caught, my teammate gets to be the hero. My teammate gets to advance. I go sit down while the whole team and the whole city cheers on my teammate. Now, to be fair, in baseball, I'd get a little fanfare, some statistical love for my sacrifice. But in my marriage, that's often not the case. There are not crowds of adoring fans cheering me on as I turn off the TV to talk and pray with my wife at the end of the day. My autograph does not increase in value every time I take my wife out of the house for a meal she didn't have to make. Husband, many of the ways you lay down your life for your wife will go unnoticed and unapplauded by most people in the world, sometimes including your wife. And according to God, that makes it all the more beautiful. If we think marriage is primarily about my own benefit, my own advancement, our vision of marriage is too small. First characteristic of a husband's leadership in marriage is that it's sacrificial. It's the ki- that's the kind of husband that Paul feels free to invite a wife to follow. Second characteristic, it's a sanctifying kind of love. Verse 26, he says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is committed to the holiness of his bride. His sacrificial love has a sanctifying effect on his people. It's not just that we're declared righteous by faith in him, but we're also made righteous by our ongoing union with him. We've been given a a, a little bit of a peek at the end of the story, things that are to come that tell us that one day we, the church, us, us, will be clothed in white, holy and blameless, standing before the great bridegroom without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Imagine that. And even now, Jesus is preparing his church for that day by his constant self-giving love on our behalf. And in some comparable way, husbands are called to be about the same kinds of things in their marriages. A beautifying of our bride. Not in the shallow, meaningless ways of Revlon and Botox, but the hidden person of the heart where imperishable beauty lives. You probably married your wife because she was beautiful in your eyes. But what you may not have known is that by marrying her, you became the one person on this earth who's best positioned to participate in the sanctifying work that God is doing in her life. There is a fully beautified, sanctified version of your wife out there in the not-so-distant future. And when you see her, as C.S. Lewis has once said, you might be tempted to worship her. She'll be that breathtaking.
in every way. And today, you get to love her in such a way as to move her closer to that final version of herself. What a privilege. No one else gets to do that the way you do, husband. You get to wash her with the truth of God's word. You get to point her to Jesus day after day. You get to show her Jesus by the way you lay your life down for her. Husband, is your love making your wife more beautiful? More holy? More like Jesus? If you think your marriage is primarily about your own beauty, your own progress, your vision for marriage is too small. Sacrificial kind of love, a sanctifying kind of love. Third thing we see here is a self kind of love. Verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, Paul said in chapter 4 that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge, but the love of self, you guys, we understand that. Paul knows if you're talking to guys long enough, eventually you're going to have to bring it right down to their level. Guys, you know how to love you some you. When's the last time you didn't know you were hungry, men? When's the last time you came down with a little sniffle and didn't stop the world to get the right medicine, the right rest, the right attention? Bless your little heart. Some of you guys spend a whole lot of time standing in front of a mirror making sure every single strand of hair is in just the right place after spending all that money on different products. I pity you. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're tired, you sleep. When you're cold, you cover up. When you're hurt, you take care of it. We know how to take care of our bodies, guys. We do this, we nourish and cherish ourselves instinctively. Paul doesn't say, why don't you pretend like your wife is a part of your body? He says, no, your wife is part of your body. Taking care of her is taking care of you. Loving her is loving you. So pay the same kind of attention to your wife that you do to yourself. I understand that, Paul. Quick pro tip, after being married almost 20 years, I've come to learn that the ways that I love myself are not always the ways that Kimberly appreciates being loved. Imagine that. thought I was blessing her so much with all the football we watched our first year of marriage. It's like, this girl, she's lucky and she knows it. But I found it extremely helpful to actually ask my wife how she feels nourished and cherished by me. It just came to a point where I just had to stop guessing and pretending and just ask. And she actually appreciated it. She actually appreciated it. It's actually helped me learn how to nourish and cherish my wife. Husband, if it's been a while since you've asked that question, I recommend you ask that today. And I apologize that now she's expecting you to. (laughs) 
how can I love you in a way that you feel nourished and cherished by me? Because that's what I'm here for. But here again is this glorious privilege that husbands are invited into. We saw back in chapter 4 that the church derives our health and growth from our connection to Jesus. His role is described in terms of care, not control. That's why it's such a tragedy when husbands stand in the way of their wives' health and growth. Our focus should be their flourishing. I've yet to meet a wife who resists that kind of leadership. If we think that our marriages are primarily about our own flourishing and fulfillment, then our vision for marriage is too small. Now let's just pause for a second and appreciate something together. We've got a little bit of a dilemma on our hands, do we not? Wives are being called to respect and follow Christ-like husbands. Husbands are being called to love and lead Christ-honoring wives. What if I'm not married to a perfect person? (laughs) What if my wife's not married to a perfect person? What gives then? Who gives then? There's a lot I'd like to say about that, but I'll just say this. That's why it's so important that this whole thing starts with be filled with the Spirit. That's why this whole thing starts with words like humility and gentleness and tenderheartedness. God's not surprised at this dilemma. He's provided for it. If I could get in one last word directly to husbands, we've got a high standard set before us, do we not? As high as they come. We have not arrived. You have not arrived, wonderful husband. If any husband walks out of this room more aware of how his wife is falling short of her standard than of how he is falling short of his standard, I've got questions. I know marriage is a two-person dance, but I also know that for my part, it's Christ's sacrificial, sanctifying, self-kind of love for me that has won my heart over to love and follow him. Or as the Apostle John wrote, we love because he first loved us. Let's be that kind of husbands. Notice also, and this goes for wives as well, God isn't commanding us to feel certain feelings. He's not commanding us to feel a certain kind of way. He's commanding us to act a certain kind of way, to live in a certain kind of way. That's not to say feelings don't matter, but it is to say that we can't just sit back waiting for certain kinds of feelings before we do certain kind of actions. That's usually the way we we, we think about it, right? I will act a certain way when I feel a certain way. But actually experience teaches us that the opposite is just as true, if not more true. Sometimes feelings come as a result of actions. It's possible to love your wife to love your husband, to walk in love, even if you are struggling with feelings of affection towards him or her. And often grace meets us in the doing. 
So if you're struggling with your affections for your spouse, perhaps the best thing you can do is start walking in love, pleading with the Holy Spirit to awaken feelings of affection in you. Now there's a fourth kind of love in view here that's going to help us get to our final point. So we've got a sacrificing kind of love, a sanctifying kind of love, a self kind of love, and then we see finally that this is a symbolic kind of love. Paul says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Everything Paul's been talking about relates to real-life husbands and wives, people like us. But then right here at the end, he does one of those mysterious little pull the curtain back just a little bit and says, oh, your vision for marriage is too small. There's a way bigger picture here. So let's, take, let's close by taking notice of the bigger picture here. Now, if I've lost any of my single friends over the last two points, please tune back in here. This is for all of us, absolutely. This whole thing has been an analogy. Calling wives to submit to husbands as the church submits to Christ. Calling husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. But then all of a sudden, Paul tells us this isn't just an analogy. It's not as though Christ's relationship with the church is simply a convenient and helpful way to instruct husbands and wives. This is what it's all about. This is what it's always been all about. Read again with me, verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis 2, second chapter of the Bible. And then Paul adds, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying It refers to Christ in the church. What refers to Christ in the church? Genesis 2? Flip back to the first or second page of your Bible for a minute. Let's go to Genesis 2. Just humor me, if you will. Let's see if we can watch this familiar drama unfold with gospel lenses on the way Paul seems to be doing. Genesis chapter 2. God creates the world. God creates man and woman. And then we get this first ever wedding. Look back at Genesis chapter 2 with me. Starting with verse 18. You thought this was about Adam and Eve, Paul asks. Look again. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the Son of Man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then upon completion of the first creation, there's not found a helper fit for him. New creation is necessary. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the Son of Man. No one took his life from him. He laid it down. His side was pierced. His body was torn open so that through it a suitable bride might be formed. And by his wounds, the Lord God made a bride and brought her to the Son of Man. And when the Son of Man arose on the third day, he saw his bride and said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called the church. Because she was taken out of the Son of Man. Therefore, this Son of God, Son of Man, left his Father in heaven to hold fast to his wife, the church, 
and they shall become one flesh. And they shall be fully known and fully loved. See what Paul's showing us? Back here in the earliest pages of Scripture, the earliest moments of humanity, as God Almighty was creating all things, he had a love story in his heart. And the rest of this story is about that. Before the first marriage ever was, God had a far greater marriage in view, and it wasn't yours and it wasn't mine. Marriage isn't simply a convenient way to talk about the gospel. Marriage exists precisely for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. This mystery is profound. If we think our marriages are really all about us, our vision for marriage is far too small. This ought to change everything for the way we think about marriage. Whether you're married, were married, will be married, or will never marry, the union of a man and a woman, wonderful as it is, is not the main event. Even Paul seemed to lose his zeal talking about human marriage once he got on to Christ and the church. Where he's like, this mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church and oh yeah, husbands love your wife and wives respect your husbands, yada, yada, yada. But Christ and the church! Author Rebecca McLaughlin says that human marriage is actually designed to disappoint. It leaves us longing for more And that longing points us to the ultimate reality of which the best marriage is but a scale model. The main event, the ultimate reality, the moment that all human history is building toward, the marriage that all other marriages in history have pointed to, is the final and never-ending union of Jesus and his people, destined from the beginning to be together forever. kind of shrinks our marriages down to size, doesn't it? Simultaneously shrinks them down to size and expands them beyond our wildest imaginations with the glory of this profound mystery. Marriage is a big deal, but maybe not for the reasons we usually think. last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the bride will be made ready, the groom will arrive, and there's this feast, this party that kicks off a never-ending party. If you're united with Christ by faith, that's where your whole life is headed. That's the main event of all human history. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper each week. We celebrate the Lord's Supper to anticipate the day that we're all living for. And also to remember the day that made it all possible. If you're serving the Lord's Supper, will you come and take your spots up front?